and we're continuing our systematic theology introduction. And we're looking at the doctrine of Scripture and exploring the attributes of Scripture. And we have considered so far the necessity of the Bible and the inspiration of the Bible. And today we're going to look at the attribute of authority. Now there are three issues under this attribute that I want us to consider today. First, the source of the Bible's authority, and then kind of as a subheading, how uh, that is to be received, persuade, the idea of persuasion, so on. Two, the extent of the Bible's authority. And then third, what authoritative role, if any, that inferences from Scripture possess? We're going to be spending the majority of our time on that first point to make sure we get this established. And then we'll look at those other two briefly at the end. But first off, let's consider the source of the Bible's authority. It's no secret that if you've been here long enough at our church, uh, we promote over and over the idea that the Bible has the final say-so in all matters when it comes to what we believe and to what we practice. Week after week, our pastor stands in this pulpit expounding upon the Word of God and imploring you to embrace this teaching and to conform your life to it. In addition to that, we often hear about the ideas that men have, political ideas, philosophical ideas, that are not in tune with what the Bible teaches and therefore are to be rejected. If you just look at our recent sermons by our pastor, we've been looking at the Eighth Commandment and in the process dealing with various political theories, such as socialism, communism, Marxism, and so on. We've heard the name Karl Marx a number of times thrown around quite a bit. and We've heard about his uh, labor theory of value and how he viewed all of history through the lens of economics and class struggle and how eventually this we would lead to a classless uh, utopia after countless revolutions. And we have been warned by our pastor how wrong these ideas are because, again, they're not in tune with the scriptures, how foolish they are, and so they're to be rejected. But this raises an interesting question, doesn't it? Why reject Marx and accept the Bible? Especially when some people claim that Marx is an authority in economics and other issues. I mean, if we're going to stand in this pulpit week in and week out, rejecting this theory, rejecting that theory, and then continually drive us back to the Bible to be received and embraced for what it has to say, this seems to imply to me that the Bible has some sort of authority over us that Karl Marx doesn't. Everything that we say and do here presupposes the authority of the Bible. But why? Where does that authority come from? And why do we accept it? Well, that answer uh, to that question really piggybacks off the lesson that we taught last week. Recall what we considered in our last lesson. In that lesson, we looked at the question of inspiration. That is, when we say that the Bible is inspired, what exactly do we mean by inspired? Do we mean that the Bible is inspiring, like Shakespeare's plays, and that they excite us and elevate our thinking? Uh, I have people in my own family, for example, who don't call themselves Christians. They don't believe that they are sinners in need of, God, need of God's grace or the redemption purchased by Christ, but they'll tell me that, well, the Bible does contain some good teachings in it. I mean, Jesus did occasionally get some things right, like loving people and, you know, the golden rule and so on. Of course, 
I question their interpretation of those things, whether they rightly understood it to begin with, but they seem to acknowledge that there is at least some good stuff in the Bible, teachings that inspire us to be better people and to be better to one another. But is that what we are talking about when we talk about inspiration? Well, to answer that question, we looked at various scriptures and we spent a little time on 2 Timothy 3.16. And what we found over and over again throughout the Bible was this idea of God putting his words into the mouths of his spokesmen. And then when we got to 2 Timothy 3.16, there we, fall, uh, we found Paul explicitly teaching that, quote, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, that is the standard English translation in many of the English Bibles. But recall what we noted about this phrase, given by inspiration of God. There we noted that this phrase is the translation of a single Greek word, theopanustos, which in turn is a compound word made up of two Greek words, one of which translates as God, theos, and the other one which translates as to breathe. And so literally that word means God breathed. As Gordon Clark put it, we can say that the Bible is, metaphorically speaking, God's breath. The Bible is not the product of some fairly decent and moral men who just happened to have some great ideas, and then God looked it over and said, hey, I approve, you got my thumbs up. The Bible is not a witness to the Word of God, nor does it merely contain the Word of God so as to suggest that some of it doesn't contain the Word of God. But rather, as we noted, the Holy Spirit so superintended the writers of the Bible that the words that they wrote were all, not only the words of them, of each particular author, but at the same time, the very exact words of God himself. Now, if that is the case, and certainly it is, then this question of authority ought to be fairly simple and easy to answer. What is the source of the Bible's authority? Given our understanding of the nature of inspiration, simple, it's God. Why can our pastor stand here week in and week out and implore you to receive and embrace this word and to reject all other theories of men? Because this word is the authentic voice of God. And beloved, there is no authority above God's. It's really that simple. Listen to how our confession puts it. In chapter 1, paragraph 2, after listing the 66 books that comprise what we call the Holy Scripture or the Word of God written, they state all which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of life or faith in life. Here they reference 2 Timothy 3.16, which we've already looked at, but also reference scriptures like the following, Luke 19. There we read that there was a certain man, rich man, who was clothed in purple, and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. 
But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between you, us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Now I want to come back to this passage in a second regarding the question of persuasion. But for now, notice here that the vines are highlighting the story to us in the confession because of the distinction that Abraham makes between the word of some random guy who rises from the dead versus the word of Moses and the prophets. In chapter 1, paragraph 3, our confession goes on to state, the books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of the scripture and therefore are of no authority in the church of God, nor to be otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. Notice here that the books commonly called the Apocrypha have no authority in the church. But why? Because they are not part of the canon of Scripture. But why are they not recognized as part of the canon of Scripture? Because, quote, not being a divine inspiration. Beloved, do you see the connection here between inspiration and authority? That's the main thing I want to drive home to you today. Notice, too, the distinction made here, as we saw in the Luke passage. There is the canon of Scripture versus human writings. The Apocrypha is categorized as human writings, and because it falls under that category, it is to have no authority in the church. But what is it that distinguishes human writings from Scripture? The inspiration of God. The Apocrypha is not God's breath. And because it is not God-breathed, it has no authority. The next paragraph in our confession tackles this even more explicitly. Paragraph 4, the authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. And therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. Again, notice the, the uh, argument here carefully. The divines here speak of the authority that Scripture has. But from where does that authority come? Why do we believe and obey the Bible? There are two wrong sources that are given, and then the right source is stated. One, the authority of the Bible does not depend on the testimony of any man. And two, the authority of the Bible does not depend on the testimony of any church. Rather, the authority of the Bible depends wholly upon God, who is its author. And therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. Jumping ahead to paragraph 10, we see a similar argument. 
There it says, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in which whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. Again, notice two things here. One, the supreme judge, which certainly touches on this issue of authority, is the Scripture. But then notice that they didn't just say that we are to rest in the Scripture, but we are to rest in the Scripture. Why? Because it is the Holy Spirit who is speaking in the Scriptures. And here to the vines reference the story in Matthew 22. If you recall in that story, there the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection tried to argue against Jesus and try to pit the law against Jesus and the doctrine of resurrection. Using the Leverite marriage law as their base, which stated that if a married man died without a son, his brother was to marry the widow, they came up with this crazy scenario where a woman ends up getting married seven times to seven brothers because they all died before any of them can have any sons. In the resurrection, these Sadducees asked, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. So in their mind, they're thinking, this is his absurdity, right? Everyone's resurrected. Everyone comes to life. And now this woman has her seven husbands that have deceased. They're, not, they're now all alive. So whose wife is she? Who does she belong to? So according to their rational rationality, the resurrection is absurd because it leads to this absurd scenario. But notice how Jesus answers them. He says, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures. Now hold on to that phrase there for a second. Not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Notice here that Jesus quotes from Exodus chapter 3, asking him if they have not read what was spoken to you by God. And he asked them this question after stating that they do not know the scriptures, the graphe, the writings. Again, do you see how Jesus equates the writings, the scriptures, with the spoken word of God? This is the connection that the vines wanted us to see here in paragraph 10 of chapter 1. The Bible is our supreme judge. It is our supreme authority because in it, God speaks. It's really simple, isn't it? So think about it. Who alone is supreme over our lives? It's God. Who or what in the universe can be said to have any authority over and above God's? Absolutely no one. In Matthew 28, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Paul writes in Romans 13, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Beloved, the source of the Bible's authority 
is holy upon God and no one or nothing else. The scripture is God breathed. It is the authentic voice of God and therefore it is to be received as the supreme judge, the rule of our faith and life. And note this, you cannot divorce the question of inspiration from the question of authority. If you attack one of these attributes, you attack them both. The extent to which you question the authority of the Bible is the same extent to which you question God himself. Well, this brings me back to the question of persuasion. If you recall, when we began this series, we talked about the necessity of Scripture, and we questioned, well, should we begin with a generic talk of God and try to prove this concept or idea of God apart from the Bible? And then if we get people to accept that, then maybe we can bring the Bible in later, and that'll help them. Or do we just begin with Scripture? Do we just start sharing Scripture with people? Well, one of the complaints made by those who oppose this idea of starting with scriptures, well, why begin with a book that people don't accept to begin with? I mean, they don't believe it, so why are you quoting it to them? And one of the things that I pointed out to you, if you remember, was to recognize that first, it's far beyond our pay grade to change anybody's hearts. It's not our responsibility to do that. But now I want to expand on that just a little more. Now I want you to bring this question of authority into this, this question, this picture, since we have made the connection here today. Think about what you are suggesting when arguing that we should first present these rational arguments for God, however God is defined, apart from Scripture. Think of the implications here with respect to the question of authority. Beloved, what is at the heart of an unbeliever's unbelief? What is it that they are rebelling against? Is it not the authority of God? Was this not the problem in the beginning with Adam and Eve? You remember God commanded that a certain tree not be ate from? And you know the story. The serpent came in, casting doubt upon the words of God, suggesting to Eve that what God said was a lie. And next thing you know, Eve is checking out the tree. She suppresses that truth in her mind. She reasons that the tree was good for food that it was pleasant to the eyes and desirable to make one wise, and then she took of its fruit and ate. And then God punishes Adam and Eve along with their descendants. Beloved, what was at the heart of this sin? Why was God's response to them so severe? You know, many atheists have mocked God in his response here, arguing that, well, God, man, he's a tyrant because they ate some fruit. But beloved, it wasn't about the fruit. Listen to John Calvin explain what made this act of eating the fruit so heinous. He says, quote, is to be observed that the first man revolted against the authority of God, not only in allowing himself to be ensnared by the wiles of the devil, but also by despising the truth and turning aside to lies. Assuredly, when the word of God is despised, all reverence for him is gone. His majesty cannot be duly honored among us, nor his worship maintained in its integrity, unless we hang as it were upon his lips. Hence, infidelity was at the root of the revolt. And from infidelity again sprang ambition and pride, together with ingratitude. Because Adam, by longing for more than what was allotted him, manifested contempt for the great liberality with which God had enriched him. 
It was surely monstrous in, in piety that a son of earth should deem it little to have been made in the likeness unless he were also made the equal of God. If the apostasy by which man withdraws from the authority of his maker, nay, perpetually shakes off his allegiance to him as a foul and execrable crime, it is in vain to extenuate the sin of Adam, nor was it simply apostasy. It was accompanied with foul insult to God. The guilty pair assenting to Satan's calumnies when he charged God with malice, envy, and falsehood. In fine, infidelity opened the door to ambition, and ambition was the parent of rebellion, man casting off the fear of God and giving free vent to his lust. Hence, Bernard truly says that in the present day, a day of sal a door of salvation is open to us when we receive the gospel with our ears, just as by the same entrance when thrown upon, when thrown open to Satan, death was admitted. Never would Adam have dared to show any repugnance to the command of God if he had not been incredulous as to his word. The strongest curb to keep all his affections under due restraint would have been the belief that nothing was better to cultivate righteousness than by obeying the commands of God, and that the highest possible felicity was to be loved by him. Man, therefore, when carried away by the blasphemies of Satan, did his very utmost to annihilate the whole glory of God. You catch the power of that. This is cosmic treason against the authority of God. And again, beloved, we see here the connection that is made between the word of God and his authority. Adam and Eve revolted against God and his authority by despising his word. You despise God's word and you despise God. It's that simple. The two go hand in hand. You cannot divorce one from the other. And since that is true, then let us return back to this question of persuasion. Beloved, understand this very important point. When the unregenerate man rejects the Bible, the unregenerate man rejects God himself and his authority. But if in rejecting the word, he rejects God, what in the world makes us think that we can argue with people, with unregenerate men, into accepting God apart from accepting his word? It doesn't make any sense. You can't separate the two. Oh, sure, you'll find people out there walking around, oh, I believe in God, but I don't accept the Bible. Well, folks, I have news for you. If that's the case, then the God that you claim to believe in is not the one true God. You are nothing more than an idolater who's heading straight for hell. To reject his word is to reject the God of that word. Beloved, there's no amount of rational arguments outside of the Bible no amount of apologetics or evidentialism or anything else that's ever going to change that. If people will not accept his word and thereby will not accept him and his authority, why in the world do we think we can persuade people with stuff outside of the Bible and thinking that's going to change their heart and benefit them? If the root of their problem is rebellion against the authority of God, what makes us think we're going to change that by appealing to some supposed authority of our own or any authority outside of God's. Love, it's impossible. Again, you may, get to, you may get a person to accept some vague notion of a creator or some intelligent designer based on some supposed authoritative claim of the professor down the road. The beloved, if they reject the word of God, 
they reject God. And all you have done is sealed them in their idolatry. That's all you've done. Go back to what Abraham said to the rich man. Remember, the rich man said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to them, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God. They have the scriptures. Let them hear the scriptures. But he said, no, Father, if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. That will persuade them. That will convince them. And what was Abraham's response? Listen, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, if they won't listen to the very voice of God, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead. And thus we read in paragraph 5 of chapter 1 in our confession the following. It says, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. The full discovery it makes of the only way to man's salvation, the many other in in incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet, notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Remember what I said two lessons ago. I think it was two lessons. Your apologetics and your evangelism have to line up with your theology, folks. And if the root of our unbelief is a rebellion against God and his authority and his word, then there's only one thing that can change that, and that's God himself. And he does so through the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. To suggest otherwise is to assert some sort of authority above and beyond God's authority, which we simply do not possess. Again, Calvin writes, Profane men think that religion rests only on opinion, and therefore that they may not believe foolishly or on slight grounds desire and insist to have it proved by reason that Moses and the prophets were divinely inspired. But I answer that the testimony of the Spirit is superior to reason. For as God alone can properly bear witness to his own words, so these words will not obtain full credit in the hearts of men until they are sealed by the inward testimony of the Spirit. The same Spirit, therefore, who spoke by the mouth of the prophets must penetrate our hearts in order to, conv to convince us that they faithfully delivered the message with which they were divinely entrusted. This connection is most aptly expressed by Isaiah in these words. Isaiah 59, 21, My Spirit that is upon thee and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed seed, saith the Lord from henceforth and forever. So that concludes our look at the source of authority. But as I said, there's two other areas that I want to address. So let me quickly turn to those and comment on those briefly. The second area was this. What is the extent of the Bible's authority? 
Well, given what we just established, again, I believe the answer to this is fairly simple and easy. If the Bible is inspired, that is, the Bible is God-breathed in the authentic voice of God, then when we ask to what extent does, it, does its authority reach, is the same to ask to what extent does the authority of God himself reach? And the obvious answer to that is it extends everywhere, over all things. Now, some may argue, ah, but Jason, again, I believe in God and accept his word, but the Bible is not a science book. It's not a biology book. It's not a quote-unquote history book. And yes, there is, a, there is a sense, it's true, that the Bible is not a science book. But beloved, think about what is being implied by that assertion. Think about what these people are driving at when they say things like this. They want us to believe that the Bible is truthful only when it deals with certain topics, like morality, for example, but not in other areas. But beloved, if that is the case, then what does that imply about the nature of inspiration, which we've already established? To say that the Bible is wrong in certain areas, like historical accounts or scientific phenomena, is the same as saying that God himself doesn't understand these things, or has gotten it wrong, has made errors. And that, in turn, is to set yourself up as some authority above and beyond God, which is just patently absurd and brings us right back to the garden. It's the same problem over and over again throughout history. Again, the point I want you to see here is the inseparable connection between God, inspiration, and the authority of God. It's a package deal. And when you attack one, you must of necessity attack the other. The Chicago Statement on Inerrancy states, quote, we affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy is grounded in the teaching of the Bible about inspiration. You see that? Because the Bible is God-breathed, it cannot err. The Chicago Statement states elsewhere, we affirm that Scripture in its entirety is inerrant, being free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. And so we deny that biblical infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual, religious, or redemptive themes, exclusive of assertions in the fields of history and science. We further deny that scientific hypothesis about earth history may properly be used to overturn the teaching of Scripture on creation and the flood. So again, to follow that train of thought that, that they have here, if the Bible has erred in fields of history and of science or any other fields, and the Bible is God's voice, then God has erred, which is impossible. Beloved, you better be careful in how you deal with science, with archaeology, and all the rest of the claims of men. When you find something casting doubt on Scripture in favor of some scientific discovery, quote-unquote, I want you to consider what is really going on there. Even if it comes from a professing believer who claims that he's just trying to keep integrity among the unbelievers. Casting doubt on the Word of God is to cast doubt on God Himself and to cast doubt upon His authority. And that extends to all of life, all areas of life in which God has spoken. Yes, it is true, as we have already noted in Romans 13, for example, that there are other authorities. Again, Paul wrote 
Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Notice here, Paul has no problem referring to the civil magistrates as governing authorities. But notice what he went on to say. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So we see here that any authority that a civil magistrate has, or for that matter, officers of a church, husband or father, or mother over children, or an elder at a church, or an employer, it is an authority that is derived. It is not ultimate and final. It is derived from God. Therefore, God's authority trumps all other authorities. And so to the extent that someone with derivative authority starts to govern in opposition to God's authority, that is God's word, is the extent to which we are not bound to obey them. This is why the confession emphasizes an adjective like supreme judge. It's not that the divines were uh, rejecting the idea that there are judges in the world, but the voice of God in the scripture is that supreme judge by which all other judges are judged. So you see this distinction between ultimate authority and derivative authority. You know, I once had a popular <coughs> hyperpreterist author tried to argue with me that, well, according to the Reformed faith, creeds and confessions have no authority whatsoever. And then he quoted the confession to me where it states in 31.4, it says, all synods or councils since the apostles' time whether general or particular, may err, and many have erred. Therefore, they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. So he says, ah, see there? The Bible is the only rule of faith. It's the only authority. We don't recognize authority in anything else whatsoever, to any degree. But it's obvious he hadn't read the entire confession, because if you just go one paragraph up, it says this. It belongeth to synods and councils ministerially to determine controversies of faith and cases of conscience, to set down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public worship of God and government of his church, to receive complaints in cases of maladministration, and authoritatively to determine the same, which decrees and determinations, if consonant to the word of God, are to be received with reverence and submission, not only for their agreement with the word, but also for the power whereby they are made as being an ordinance of God appointed thereunto in his word. Well, why would the divine speak of synods and councils authoritatively determining issues which decrees and determinations are to be received and submitted to if the divines recognized absolutely no form or degree of authority whatsoever other than God's? Well, the answer is because they understood this distinction between the ultimate authority of God and the derivative authority. They understood that there is a real authority that is exercised by civil magistrates, by church officers, by parents, that is derived from the ultimate authority under which it is to be exercised under and held accountable to at the authority of God. So yes, we can recognize various forms of authority, but we do so understanding that they operate under the authority of God in his word, and they will be held accountable to that authority. Well, lastly, let's look at the, real quickly, the question of inferences. 
And the question is, what place do logical inferences from Scripture have? Are they as authoritative as explicit teachings from the Bible? And I realize this may seem like a weird time to bring this up, discuss this, but it's actually a big issue with a lot of Christians. Um, you know, in my own particular experience, for some reason, I don't know why, but with the Baptist in particular, I run into this problem a lot when it comes to the doctrine of infant baptism. I'm not saying it's all Baptist, but it seems to be a great deal of them for some reason. I don't know. And even when you can uh, contrast the uh, 1689 confession with the Westminster, they even reworded it differently there in paragraph six. Not sure what's going on, but there is this question. Is if we make these logical inferences from the Bible, do those inferences, if valid, if valid, validly deduced from Scripture, are they as authoritative as explicit statements? When you read uh, Fred Malone's book against infant baptism, for example, this is his main argument against infant baptism. That infant baptism is a practice that is inferred from Scripture and therefore it doesn't carry the same weight or authority as a direct command or explicit command. Well, it could answer this swiftly and easily by quoting our confession, which states, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. We could end it there and say, there, take that. <laughs> but lest I get accused of honoring some confession over God's word, consider how Scripture itself deals with this question. And for this, I want us to go back to that encounter Jesus had with the Sadducees. Remember, they denied the resurrection. They were trying to trap Jesus with this crazy scenario for embracing such a doctrine. But what's extremely interesting about Jesus' response is that he quotes from, quote, the passage about the bush, Exodus 3, to prove this doctrine of resurrection. And then he tells them, you're wrong because you don't know the scripture nor the power of God. Here's the thing, though. Read Exodus chapter 3 when you get home today. There's nothing explicitly said anywhere in that chapter about dead people coming back to life. It's not there. And scholars have been puzzled over this. When I was a hyperpreterist, we used that to say, oh, see, it's not about resurrection of dead bodies. It's something else, some spiritual resurrection, some nonsense. So how in the world did Jesus get the doctrine of resurrection from Exodus chapter 3 if it's not explicitly taught there? Now, I have my own theory as to how he did it, and I wrote about that, but I'm not going to get into that. But the point I want you to see today is this. Regardless of how we think he did it, we all agree, all the theologians and scholars agree that he's making an inference from Exodus 3. It's not explicit, but he is making an inference. And the fact that this doctrine of resurrection is a logical inference in Exodus 3 did not make the Sadducees any less responsible for denying it. Jesus scolded them and said, no, you are wrong. You don't know your Bible, nor do you understand the power of God. Clearly, then, we see from Jesus' own example that a good and necessary consequence deduced from Scripture is just as certain and just as true 
as an explicit statement. Even Fred Malone acknowledges in his book that the doctrine of the Trinity, which is certainly one of our most essential and fundamental doctrines, is the result of, quote, a good and necessary consequence deduced from Scripture, which God, which speak of God as one yet in three persons equally divine. So he'll acknowledge that regarding the doctrine of Trinity, yet for whatever arbitrary reason, he doesn't think that a good and necessary consequence deduced from Scripture suffices when it comes to the sacraments and to worship. Because supposedly the regulative principle contradicts this idea. But beloved, the Reformed and the Westminster Confession totally reject that, evidenced by the very fact that the Confession affirms both the practice of infant baptism and the regulative principle. Beloved, according to Jesus' own argument, again, as we see here, if a doctrine or practice can be shown to be deduced from Scripture validly, rightfully, in keeping with the rules of inference, then that doctrine or practice is to be received as true and certain just as much as it would be if it were explicitly stated. It carries the same weight. It carries the same authority. And that's extremely important to keep in mind when you deal with various errant teachings and heresies. Well, my timer didn't even start, <laughs> but <clears throat> I want to end it here. But again, I hope you see today the connection between inspiration and authority, which in turn informs us of the extent of the Bible's authority in all things. Beloved, let us not be ashamed of his word, for it is the very voice of God and is the rule for all of life in faith. I close with these verses from Psalm 119. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes and I will not forget your word. Beloved, may we be a people that do not forget his word. Let us pray.